She was found in a creek. Nothing else, just her, naked, laying face down in that rural creek. She'd been out there for about a week. Who she was, that was a mystery. How she got there, that was a mystery too. All authorities knew was they were probably looking at an overdose. However, we'd find out later, it wasn't an overdose. But there was bodies. Lots of bodies. Between 1999 and 2003, in the western side of Oklahoma near Lawton, about five women would go missing, only to later turn up in creek beds all around the surrounding counties. Who was killing these women? And why were they killing them? That still remains a mystery, even almost 20 years later. I'm Amanda Newland Davis, and this is The Throwaways. My name is Amanda Newland Davis. Along with my partner, Jen Gregg, we run Oklahoma Cold Cases, which is a platform based mostly on Facebook in which we share the stories of cold cases around Oklahoma that haven't gotten very much media attention. For the last four years, we've been doing that solely on Facebook. And then in the last year, we started launching into our own database hosted on our website that contains all of the cold cases around Oklahoma. This includes missing persons, homicides, and unidentified persons. But for the last three years, Jen and I have delved deep into the missing and murdered women in the Lawton, Oklahoma area. While Jen lives in Oklahoma, I do not. In fact, I've only ever been in the state twice. But Jen is actually from the area close to Lawton. So it came up pretty quickly in our partnership where she started talking about the fact that there could have been a serial killer active in the Lawton area, at least from 1999 to 2003. My interest was certainly piqued, especially when I started looking at these cases and saw that they were very similar to killings in Chillicothe, Ohio that had happened over about the same number of years. Eventually, my curiosity would get the better of me, and I would start looking into the killings in Lawton. But in order to get to 1999 and that girl laying face down in that rural creek, we have to go back in time so everyone can understand what we're dealing with in Lawton and how women are treated in the Lawton area. Lawton, Oklahoma is not exactly a huge metropolis. However, it does have a pretty large population. In 2010, the census showed that there was about 100,000 people living within Comanche County, which is the county that holds Lawton. This is mostly due in part to the fact that there is a large military installation there. Fort Sill is one of the training bases that the Army utilizes once soldiers graduate from boot camp. This base is used for artillery training, meaning that it has large, unmanned artillery fields throughout the entire base, making it a pretty large installation. As for the city itself, 
Lawton rests about 87 miles southwest of Oklahoma City and only about 40 miles from the Texas border. It also holds a pretty major interstate exchange. Interstate 44 runs right smack dab through Lawton. I think it's pretty safe to say, though, that Lawton is not exactly the safest place to live. Pretty much since its inception as a town, Lawton has had a very, very high crime rate. This could be due to a number of factors. These days, it's probably due to the large military base that's there, meaning a lot of transient people tend to come in and out of the Lawton area. The fact that a major highway runs through it doesn't exactly help the crime rates any. A dissertation that I read that was written about the criminal element in Lawton states that as far back as the 1950s, sex work was engaged in pretty openly without any fear of actually getting arrested or getting into any trouble. In fact, when I Google search Lawton, Oklahoma and sex work, up comes an image taken in 1978 outside of the Gold Dragon, which was, quote, a go-go dancer club, which really just meant it was a topless dancing club. There were women engaging in sex work that were hanging outside of it, waiting for the nearby soldiers stationed at Fort Sill to come around because it was their payday. So everyone kind of knows in the area that sex work is a big thing, and really not a lot is done about it. Police conduct stings every once in a while, and they make arrests. But in Oklahoma, for the most part, prostitution is a misdemeanor. So really, you're getting a fine, and you're getting released, and if you get some jail time, it's not very much. I say all of that just to give you an idea of how women are really looked at in this area. For the most part, they're not even looked at as much more than objects. Things to be used by men or law enforcement as a means to an end. That's why our story really starts to take place in 1983 with the disappearance of an 18-year-old woman named Lisa Farmer. Frank Farmer Jr. and Lisa Watkins both knew each other in high school back in Union, South Carolina. They got married in mid-1983 when Lisa was 18 years old and Frank was 20. Lisa also had a young son, just over a year old, and when they got married, they moved to Lawton, because that's where Frank was stationed, at Fort Sill. At first, they lived in a condo, and after that, they moved to a house. This house would prove to be the last house that Lisa Farmer was ever seen in. They were only, and only in the house that she disappeared from for, what, like two weeks? Uh, well, it depends. I read some places two weeks and I've read some places three days. Yeah, so it was either way, it was really quick. They hadn't been there very long. No, they hadn't been there very long. And I know that she had been struggling because it was her first night there by herself. Yeah, her husband had left to go to a field exercise. That's a conversation between myself and my partner, Jen. I apologize for the quality of the audio recording. However, as I've explained, Jen and I do not live in the same place. Throughout this episode, you will hear snippets of a conversation between myself and Jen, as I wasn't able to interview any family members of Lisa Farmers. Her husband, Frank, has been undergoing some family issues, and her son, well, he's just not really ready to talk about it publicly. On August 2nd, 1983, Frank Farmer was due on the base 
to go out into the field. These are what is known as field exercises, where troops will spend sometimes days on end literally out in the field doing training exercises. Frank's job in his unit was a driver, so he was responsible mainly for driving around his command. During these exercises, most of the, the troops in the unit will be out literally in a field. This means that there is almost zero communication, especially in the 80s, before cell phones existed. So Lisa would have been home, alone, without any communication with her husband. This apparently was nerve-wracking for young Lisa, especially being alone in a house with your young child and a house that you were unfamiliar with. Remember, they'd only been there for a few days, weeks at the most. According to the police report eventually filed by Frank Farmer in the disappearance of his wife, the last time Lisa was seen was probably around 8 p.m. on August 2nd when their next-door neighbor saw her through the kitchen window opening the refrigerator. There's also a statement by Frank Farmer that he was told by his landlord that lived behind him and Lisa that he had seen Lisa around 6.30 p.m. that night. So sometime after 8 p.m., Lisa went missing without a trace. What happened between 8 p.m. and the next day? The next morning, the same neighbor who saw Lisa through the window would start hearing a baby crying. The baby was Lisa's son, and he didn't stop crying. Not even a little. Not all day. Well, yeah, the next morning, that's why we know she was missing, is that the next morning, the same neighbor that had seen her through the window starts hearing the baby crying. And since it's, it's August... And it's the 80s. I'm guessing there's not a whole lot of air conditioning. They probably all had all the windows open, correct? Well, they didn't have air conditioning at all. Yeah. And I did look. I think it was like in the 80s that night. So it was still pretty hot. Mm -hmm. and so they had the windows open, probably. Yeah. And Frank, the husband, said that um, when I talked to him a couple months ago that they did they did that. They left the windows open. I mean, you have to think, at this point in time, the campy horror films that, you know, terrified us as, you know, at our age, in our generation, don't leave your doors unlocked, don't leave your windows open, mm -hmm. wasn't really a thing. I mean, they existed, sure, but I think no. the first Halloween <laughs> movie was only released like five years before. Yeah, I think they were a lot more, they felt a lot more safe at night. After hearing the baby cry for hours on end, the neighbor does eventually go over to the farmer residence, knocking on the door trying to get someone to come to the door. However, nobody does. And when that happens, she then calls. Remember, it is 1983, so if Lisa was out, it's not like she would have picked up a cell phone and walked off with it. Nope, we were dealing with landlines here. So the neighbor calls, but there's no answer. And eventually, that afternoon, she goes over to the back door and I think gets in, either gets in through the window or she let herself in through the, uh, the back door, which was unlocked. The back door. Yeah, the back door. She comes in through the back door. Um, some reports say it was open, but they all say that it was unlocked. And finds just the baby at home, no sign of Lisa, and no real sign of struggle either. So the neighbor goes in through an unlocked back door which was next to an open window that went into the dining room. She finds the baby with a dirty diaper, very hungry, and all alone, with no signs of struggle. What happened to Lisa? can only imagine what that neighbor thought. And also, keep in mind, they were neighbors, 
close enough to be able to see Lisa through a window. This neighbor didn't hear anything. No shouting, no screaming, apparently no signs that their struggle had happened at all. She was probably just as surprised as the baby was to find him all alone. No, everything was, basically the house was untouched. It's like she just vanished. Her wedding ring was there. Her wallet with her identification was there. All I think her shoes. All of her shoes were there. I think there was money in her wallet, Frank said. She's just not going to walk out what, in her nightgown, which is the only thing they think is... Right, she- by herself, for no reason. Uh-huh. At this point, the neighbor knows that something is very wrong. A young mother isn't just going to leave in the middle of the night without her child. So her husband, the neighbor's husband that is, and another neighbor's husband both go to the base to see if they can get a hold of Frank. Because remember, there's no cell phones. It's not like they can just call him up and ask him what happened. So that's how Frank sees it. He just happened to be driving his command back to their headquarters, pulls up, and sees two people that don't even know each other standing outside of his unit's headquarters, waiting to talk to him, telling him that his wife is gone. It's also important to probably note that Lisa didn't drive. She didn't have her driver's license. And even if she did, Frank had the only car that they had with him on the base. So if Lisa did take off on her own, she would have had to do so on foot and in a town that she was very unfamiliar with, and without her child. After meeting with his neighbors, Frank knows something's very wrong. Lisa would never just leave her child unattended. So he goes back home, and sure enough, it's exactly like his neighbors were saying. There's no Lisa. It's like she had just disappeared into thin air. After finding that his wife, in fact, was nowhere to be found, Frank does what any logical person would do. He heads to the police department to report her missing. There's obviously been a crime. And what happens next is kind of everyone's nightmare. They won't take the report. They simply say, oh, you guys must have had a fight. She stormed off and she'll be back. Except Frank hadn't been home since Lisa was last seen. There's no way they had gotten into a fight and Lisa just left, especially, once again, without her infant son. Not only did Frank try to report his wife missing once on August 3rd, he tried to report her missing twice on August 3rd, both times with the police refusing to take the report. Frank's dad, Frank Sr., flies in from South Carolina, where he was a detective himself flies in to help his son, and together they kind of push the police into uh, taking a report. By the time the report was taken, which was the morning of August 4th, Lisa had not been seen for almost 48 hours. Those of you who are well-versed in true crime know that the first 48 hours after a person goes missing are critical. If a missing person is going to be found alive, the chances that they're going to be found alive are much higher in the first 48 hours. Both Franks, Frank Jr. and Sr., go back to the house. They request police to come over and walk through the house. They don't. Frank Sr. starts going through the house to see what evidence is there, what what shows that she was taken. And they find a beer bottle sitting on the living room, the coffee table, and... According to Frank Jr., neither him or Lisa drank, so and they didn't even have beer in the house, so it wasn't theirs. Whoever brought the beer bottle, it, brought, it came from their house. Mm-hmm. And there is a blanket, typically folded over the back of the couch, 
that has been wadded up and just kind of shoved into the corner of the couch. And inside the blanket is Lisa's house robe. Which she always wore. Which she always wore. Yeah. Frank said that she wasn't one to really show a lot of skin. So if she answered the door, she would have had her robe on. Exactly. According to paperwork typed up by Frank's chaplain that gives a timeline of the events surrounding Lisa's disappearance. On August 4th, Frank and his father requested that the police come to the farmer house to do a walkthrough. There was no visit on August 4th. And then on August 5th, there wasn't a visit then either. On August 6th, Frank and his father both go to the police station, taking with them 18 items of evidence collected by themselves from the farmer household. At this point, they sit down with two different detectives from the Lawton Police Department. And what they get to hear, it's odd. They talk to two detectives, and when the name Kenneth Wagstaff is mentioned, one of the detectives says, quote, oh shit, did not explain it, and got up and left the room. So the name Kenneth Wagstaff comes up during this interview between the Franks and the two detectives. Kenneth Wagstaff, he was the maintenance man for the property that the farmers lived in. When talking to Frank, he told me that Kenneth was kind of creepy, that he would catch him staring at them, and then when Kenneth would see Frank seeing him, he would just turn around and go about his merry business. Keep in mind, they'd only lived there for a few days, so what kind of impression did this guy have to give that Frank already thought he was creepy and odd? And at that, I can't imagine, like, what... (laughs) Here's this creepy guy that you're already uncomfortable with. His name gets brought up as, hey, this guy's weird. He's creepy. He's around. He has access. He has access. He was always staring at us, making us feel uncomfortable. And the response is, oh, shit. And nothing else. (laughs) It just walks out. No explanation. And then you're sitting there wondering what happened to your person. And then you have to go back to that house that he lives behind. Yeah. Like, he still lives there. He's still there. He's still around. You know, cops ever happened to check if he had that same beer in his house that was found in the house? No, and they never collected the beer bottle either to to fingerprint it. So the day that they have the meeting with the detectives on August 6th, and they physically brought all this evidence to the police, the police don't take it. They don't want it. Then the farmers once again ask for a visit by detectives to come to the house. This time, though, one of the detectives that they interviewed with did, in fact, come to the house on August 6th. He came eight different times, each time, though, never setting foot inside the actual residence. So, like, this could all be put to rest, really. It could have been put to rest within that first two or three days, don't we think? Oh, absolutely. There's even, in the documents that Frank gave me, there's even a note that I have to assume was taken by a receptionist or something, mm-hmm. that it's an information card, and it says, Complainant's husband and father-in-law stated that a maintenance man dropped by the apartment at 8 o'clock a.m. on August the 3rd. He said he heard a baby crying, but no one answered the door. It goes on to say that blue fuzzy slippers were missing and that Lisa was presumably wearing them. And then at the very bottom, it does say Kenny Wagstaff. So 
So he was uh, known as Kenny. And how old was he at the time? He was about 20, right? Um, I think he had just turned 21. 20 or 21, yeah. By this point, it looks like we have a main suspect. Kenneth Wagstaff had access to the house. He was someone that Lisa knew. And Kenneth even puts himself at the house, at the very least on the morning of August 3rd, saying that he heard the baby crying. But he didn't call anybody? He just knocked on the door and left? When nobody answered? But a baby was crying? That in itself, to me, is a bit suspect, I'll be honest. Kenneth Wagstaff himself is a bit of a mysterious character. He wasn't from Oklahoma. He was actually from New York, just outside of Manhattan. And he was from a pretty high societal family. Back then, high society was everything, especially in the New England area. His father had attended a pretty prestigious military academy and had pretty high standing in the army. So when Kenneth became the black sheep of the family, getting into tons of trouble, his family sent him off to Oklahoma to live with his brother-in-law, who was in the army, and his sister as they were stationed at Fort Sill. When he was 19, Kenneth apparently committed what, for his family, was the last straw. He was arrested after he led police on a chase when they tried to pull him over after he had been involved in an accident and then was driving 90 miles per hour in a 30 mile an hour zone. He finally went off of an embankment, at which point police arrested him. However, that's probably the least egregious of all of his atrocities that he committed in New York. Previously, he had been accused of sexually assaulting two women in New York before coming to Oklahoma. And he was supposed to be residing with his sister and brother-in-law, but it shows his address as being the, the duplex behind yeah. the warmers. Yeah, either behind, right next to, it's, it's, mm-hmm. Either way, they're, you know, they're right next to each other. So, you know, eventually, about a month later, another woman goes missing, whose name was Cynthia Lynn Ross. In October of 1983, a 19-year-old girl named Cynthia Lynn Ross would also go missing from the Lawton area. Only this time, Cynthia's body would later be found, having been thrown over a bridge into the water below it. She was partially naked and had been strangled to death. Cynthia is the only reason that we even know that Lisa Farmer existed, really. Lisa's disappearance never really made much media coverage. It made more media coverage back in her native South Carolina than it ever did in Oklahoma. The reason that Cynthia Lynn Ross and Lisa Farmer are forever tied together is because Kenneth Wagstaff was the only suspect in the murder of Cynthia Lynn Ross. He was the last person seen with her, and then he was seen parking her car after she had gone missing and walking away from it. On October 5th, 1983, Kenneth Wagstaff would be arrested for the murder of Cynthia Ross. He would then be tried in 1984 before he was actually acquitted of her murder. Realistically, the police only had circumstantial evidence tying Kenneth to her case. It's 1983. We didn't really have DNA back then, even if they could get some, considering that Cynthia's body had been found in water. So, in June of 1984, after the jury deliberated for only an hour, Kenneth walked out of the Comanche County Courthouse a free man. This didn't set so well with the prosecutor in the case, who knew that Kenneth was an evil person. He labeled Kenneth a thrill killer, blaming the system for the loss saying that the system didn't allow juries to see all of the evidence in the case. He then went on to say, Kenneth was the only suspect in the disappearance of 18-year-old Lisa Farmer. However, they just didn't have enough evidence to even present it to a grand jury. I could only imagine how Lisa's family felt at this point. 
It's been a year since their person went missing, and they weren't even waiting a year to say that, hey, something needs done here. In September of 1983, Lisa's mother, Geraldine, had gone on record with the media in Union, South Carolina, saying they're not doing anything. My kid has disappeared into thin air, and nothing's being done. In fact, within a few days of Lisa going missing, Geraldine, known as Jerry, comes to Oklahoma herself in order to take custody of Lisa's son. At that point, the farmers and Jerry ask, do you want to speak to Jerry? She knew Lisa the best. The police say no. And at that point, nothing else much is done for Lisa. They give Frank Farmer a polygraph test in which he passes with flying colors. It didn't stop the detective that gave him the polygraph from saying some pretty cruel things. According to the report that was written by Frank's chaplain, the detective told Frank that he was going to be very blunt and said that he knew that Frank had come in from the field, found his wife with another man, and then killed her. He then told Frank that he was going to, quote, burn you to the cross. However, Frank still passed the polygraph. August 12th of 1983 would mark one of the last times that anyone in the Farmer or Watkins family would hear from Lawton Police Department regarding the disappearance of Lisa Farmer. Frank would tell me when I called him that after 1983, he heard from the police in Lawton one other time in the 90s. After that, I was the next person to get a hold of him in 2021. Can't even imagine how that must feel. Lisa went missing 38 years ago, and I'm the next person to call him? By 1984, Frank had left both Oklahoma and the Army, returning to his native South Carolina, which is where he still lives. Lisa's mother, Geraldine, then started raising Lisa's son and kept raising him until her death in 1990. As for Kenneth Wagstaff, all I really have to go on for this episode is media accounts about him, in which there are very few. According to the article in Oklahoma, when he was acquitted of Cynthia's murder, his attorney said that he was going straight from the courthouse getting on a plane, and flying back to New York. It does look like that's probably what he did, but in 1985, he was arrested for another DUI in New York. After that, it looks like he moved to New Jersey. In 1988, there's an article about Kenneth in which he had been arrested for a home invasion in which a woman was sexually assaulted. He was arrested in this particular crime because of his prior arrest the previous December, so December of 1987. In the 1987 case, he had been arrested after allegedly choking a woman who was a passenger in his car. So for those keeping track, this is about the fifth time that Kenneth had been charged in the assault of a woman. Prior to his 1983 arrest in Oklahoma, Kenneth had been charged in New York once with attempted murder and once with attempted rape. These were two different instances, and he beat charges on both of them. Then he was arrested in Oklahoma for the murder of Cynthia Lynn Ross, in which they believe she was probably sexually assaulted. Then he's the suspect in the disappearance of Lisa Farmer. Even though we don't have any evidence to say that it actually was him, he's the only suspect. Then in 1985, he moves to New Jersey, after which he assaults at least one more woman and then is arrested for the sexual assault of another. Even though it does look like he beat charges on both, you have to start to wonder, how many of these crimes did he actually commit? And how many more are out there that we don't even know about? After this particular article in New Jersey in 1988, I lose track of Kenneth Wagstaff. I still haven't been able to find him. 
I've heard that he's in prison somewhere for a murder charge. I've also heard that he's dead. Either, or, or both could be true. I honestly don't know. What I do know is that the case of Lisa Farmer has never been solved. We still don't know where she is. What happened to her that night? Her family deserves some kind of justice, some kind of closure. The last time I talked to her son, which was about a month ago, he told me that he doesn't even remember his mom, which makes sense considering he was just over one when she disappeared. can tell you that he looks a lot like her. He also said that he hears a lot how much she loved him, but he simply doesn't know for himself. I think that her son would probably be satisfied with just knowing what happened to his mom. Of course, he would love to be able to find her, but just knowing, that would be enough. I've told you the story of Lisa Farmer, Cynthia Ross, and Kenneth Wagstaff really for one reason. Nobody really looked for Lisa. And if they're not out there looking for an 18-year-old mother and wife, who else aren't they looking for? For more information about all the cold cases of Oklahoma, please visit us either on Facebook at Oklahoma Cold Cases or at oklahomacoldcases.org. This is The Throwaways. And I am Amanda Newland Davis. The Throwaways is a podcast made by Oklahoma Cold Cases. It features Amanda Newland Davis and Jennifer Gregg. For more information on Oklahoma Cold Cases, please visit us at oklahomacoldcases.org.